Let's take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, second book of the New Testament, Mark chapter 10. In most studies we do on Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, or Thursday nights, um, there's a lot of um, personal application. We take the text, we study it, we learn what it says, and then we apply it to our lives. And that's important to do. Um, but uh, this morning, I really want to focus a little differently. There are times where we just need to study and appreciate the Lord, right? Where we just need to be aware of who God is. Because like when we come to the communion table, there needs to be a, a constant attitude of appreciation. We need to be astounded by God's love and by God's mercy because it's easy to get dull. And it's easy, as we have said throughout the morning, to kind of let that fire uh, die a little bit and to kind of get a little apathetic. So sometimes when we study Scripture, we just need to be impressed by God, impressed by Jesus' character, overwhelmed by his uh, commitment to us, by the fact that he did what he did, and, and just more determined to love him, more determined to follow his example because of all that he has done. Now, this is one of those studies. There will be uh, some application this morning, but, but uh, as we enter into these two weeks uh, of, of uh, really focus leading up to Resurrection Sunday, I, I pray, my prayer is that we're going to be amazed by Jesus that we're going to be more aware of him, that we're going to be more grateful for him, that we're going to be overwhelmed by the mercy of God, and that this year is just going to be, when we finally get here on Resurrection Sunday, it's going to be like, okay, we're going to praise the Lord now. I mean, we're serious. We're, we're, we're going to, this is going to be different today because look at what Jesus has done. And we're going to do four studies that I pray will give us a new perspective uh, about our Savior and Lord. Today, I'm calling this message a different side of Jesus. Uh, I'm hoping that we will um, see something about Jesus' character that I think tends to be kind of overlooked and, and which has been diminished by man mankind. Next week, we'll look at his heart for humanity as we um, look how he weeps over the town of Jerusalem. On Good Friday, we'll talk about uh, how he wrapped himself in the towel of a servant. And then on Resurrection Sunday, we'll talk about the tree and the tomb, how his presence at both changed history for all eternity. So in these studies, the focus is one thing, Jesus Christ. There's no other focus. That's who we're concentrating on because he is our only hope and our only Savior. How many are glad for that truth this morning? He's our only hope and our only Savior. So here we have him in Mark chapter 10. And Jesus, let me just give you a little background before we get to our three verses. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. Now, that means at this stage of the gospel that he's going up to the cross. Jewish authorities had already decided to eliminate Jesus because his teaching and his miracles um, had exposed their own self-righteousness and their own hypocrisy and their own sin. And they're angry at this point. They're jealous of him because he's corrected them publicly. He's called them out. And not to mention that, but the people now are really gravitating to him. They've heard the truth. They've seen the miracles. Um, and that's only exacerbated uh, the, the religious leader's anger because they know that this is truth, but they don't want to accept it. 
So the people start to believe. The people start to follow. Huge crowds are all around Galilee. Everywhere Jesus goes, the crowds are pressing in on him. They start to believe. Maybe this is Messiah. Maybe this is the one that God said would come. And since the Jewish leaders are rejecting that, since they see that as as blasphemy, they have to stop Jesus. So after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, there's a council that gets together, and they meet with Caiaphas, who's the high priest, who should be the spiritual leader of the nation, who should be the one calling the people and saying, look, there's the fulfillment of Isaiah. There's Messiah. We need to all worship him and follow him. But instead of doing that, Caiaphas is plotting with the other people on how to kill Jesus. Word of that gets to him, and he goes into the wilderness. And he stays there for an amount of time that isn't determined by the text. But here in Mark chapter 10, he starts to move toward Jerusalem. Look at verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Now, it's important to notice, if you drop back a page to chapter 9 and verse 30, that Jesus had already told the disciples what was going to happen. At the time, they didn't understand what he was talking about because they were preoccupied with an internal discussion among themselves. And the internal discussion was about which one of them was the greatest. Perfect discussion when the Savior is about to go to the cross, right? Well, I'm better than you, John. No, Bartholomew, come on. Uh, Thomas, you're worse than all of us. Like, this is the discussion they're having. And I want you to keep that in mind as a matter of contrast Because when we look at what Jesus does this morning, it's incredible to think that these 12 who are walking with him every single day would even entertain that topic even for a second. And it's just another example of the hardness of mankind's heart. It's just another example of the pride of our heart that, that we are so completely unworthy to think that we can be God. And yet, here are the disciples who are walking with him every day who are having this discussion completely tone-deaf to what's going on. It's amazing that, that Jesus doesn't just verbally abuse them at this point and say, what is wrong with you? Instead, Jesus is gentle, and he pulls a little child, and he says, look, you need to have the, the mindset here of this little child, the humility and the, and the understanding of, of this deferential mindset of a disciple. So they're confused, chapter 9. They're still confused, even though at this point, everything that happens from chapter 9, verse 30, up to chapter 10, verse 32, every bit of teaching that Jesus does, and we'll scan it in a minute, look at verse 38 of chapter 9, everything here is uh, a warning and an instruction that highlights all that he's embodying here. Starting in chapter 9, verse 38, he talks about the importance of humbly serving each other. He warns about being a stumbling block. 
He tells them to guard about having a hard heart, which leads to things, chapter 10, like, like divorce, where our, where our heart gets hardened and we want our own way. He gives them a clear example, uh, starting in chapter 10, verse 13, of pure faith through the little children who surrounded him. He tells the need for his followers to sacrifice everything, which the rich young ruler would not do, and he went away sad because he had many possessions. Then he explains in the middle of chapter 10 the difficulty of entering the kingdom of heaven for those who are rich, not because wealth is a bad thing, but because it makes us materialistic. And that becomes the focus of our energy is making more and more money and having more and more things. He says that's going to hinder you from the kingdom of heaven because it's, as we saw this morning, about sacrifice. And then he emphasizes the need to lead everything right before the text we read the need to leave everything and follow him. And he says, God will bless that when you do that. Now, it's reasonable to conclude that at this point, despite what he told them in chapter 9 and despite these six or seven examples of teaching, that they still don't get it. Because in verse 32 of chapter 10, we see that it says Jesus, notice every word in Scripture, Jesus again took them aside. In other words, he realizes they're not perceiving it, so I need to again pull them uh, aside and tell them the purpose of going to Jerusalem right now. And this time, it seems to get their attention. And it seems to get their attention because of how they react and, and their kind of um, understanding and, and response to Jesus' physical and spiritual posture. Now, the road that they're on is the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. I was last on that road in 1990 in a bus that was nice and cool. you got to have air conditioning in Israel. And I want to tell you, I've never been to a place, and I've been to South Dakota, I've never been to a place that was more barren, that had less. It is desert. It's rocky. There's no shade whatsoever. There's no place to stop. There are no towns. Uh, it's hot and dry and unforgiving. And that 15 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem, which honestly seems like 100, I, I, I was thinking it was about 60, and I researched it, and it said 15, and I thought, there's no way it's 15 miles. But it's 15 miles, and it's straight uphill. There's an elevation change of 3,300 feet, so that's over half a mile going up. So you're down in the, in the area of the Jordan Valley, which is below sea level, and you start up that road, and it's a narrow road. It really has not changed much since the first century, I don't think. And it's just a narrow road that goes up through the desert, through the rocks, through the cliffs. There's nothing. I mean, you look for a tree, and there is not a tree. And it's gray and brown and just kind of dry and hot and miserable. So here's this 15 miles that they're walking from Jericho to Jerusalem, unprotected, sun's beating down, they're tired, they're, they're worn out, ministry has been difficult, and people are following them. But what's even worse than all of that is what Jesus knows he's facing. He has a full awareness at this point of what is going to happen, and he lays it out in brutal detail. Look at verse 33. He says, I'm going to be delivered to people whose authority is strong and who despise me. 
They're filled with so much jealousy and so much hatred at this point that even just being handed to them wasn't going to be pretty. But he says they're going to do more than that. They're going to condemn me. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to scourge me. And they're going to kill me. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Now, that kind of catches the disciples' attention. But, but what is unsaid here is that on top of all the physical and, and emotional abuse, Jesus is going to carry the weight and the condemnation of every single sin that has ever been committed. He's going to feel separation from the Father. I don't understand it, but, but that's what it is. You've got to take it on faith. And he's going to, to die as the sinless, innocent, sacrificial lamb who has no real business being on the cross other than we need a savior and that's the only solution. And he's so specific about it that there's no way when they hear him say what he does in verse 32, or verse 33, excuse me, there's no way that they can miss it. Jesus says, this is the reason that I've come here. Now, it's interesting to notice the Holy Spirit's words here because it says that the disciples, when they realize what's going to happen, they are amazed and fearful, not at what he's just said, but they're amazed and fearful that he is leading the way, that he is physically walking ahead of them toward Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have every reason to hang back at that point. I'd have every reason to walk slowly. I'd have every reason to say, you know what, let's, let's take the long route. Let's, Dead Sea is nice this kind of year. Let's, let's walk down and see what the Dead Sea looks like. And maybe we can run up through Bethel and Bethlehem and, and hang out there for a couple days, maybe get a nice little place to stay, have some, you know, some, some bagels and, and just kind of, I don't know, let's hang out for a couple days because Jerusalem's not going to be fun. So, so let's, let's take our time. Now, I know I'm speaking a little metaphorically here, but, but anything, right, to, to delay what he was facing. Because remember, he's fully human. He understands the pain. He understands the physical torture. There is a, there's a mental anticipation that this is going to be so brutal beyond anything we can understand. And he's having to go face that. But then he's not only fully man, but he's fully God. So there's a, a spiritual dread. What is he going to face? He's going to have the weight of every sin. And that's in a number that we can't even count. That, that the weight of every single sin is going to be put on him. It could not have been worse. There could not have been a, a, a more horrible outcome. But notice in the text, it's in verse 32. It says, he's far ahead of them. Now I want to give you three truths about Jesus this morning that I think are so powerful and I hope will really start to stir our heart as we head into these next two weeks. The first amazing truth about Jesus is that he was completely resolved. He was completely resolved. Here he is. He's walking out ahead of the disciples. He's advancing. He's got a, a, a determined look on his face. He's got an undeniable fixed purpose as he heads toward Jerusalem. It almost seems like he's hurrying to Jerusalem. Like, like let's go. Let's, let's get this done. I want to get there. And he's not going for a coronation. He's going for the cross. 
This is not, okay, King Jesus is here, and we're going to put him on the throne, and he's going to rule like it was prophesied, like it was said by the angels when he was born. And Herod's like, wait a second, there's a new king? And the wise men come and say, where's the king? This is not a coronation. This is the cross. And it's so shocking to the disciples that he's out in front of them that, that they don't even know what to think. On one hand, they're stunned, but on the other hand, his, his, his resoluteness actually frightens them. They're scared. Like, what is going on? Like, you remember, the disciples are already having little conversations, right? What's going on? Man, what, what is he doing way up there? He just told us he's going to Jerusalem to die. He's going to be scourged and mocked and put on a cross, and he's going to die? Why isn't he holding back? Think about the, the humanity of the conversation here in the text that maybe we don't see. And think about the incredible strength of will that it took for him as he approaches this antagonism and this opposition that he's going to face when he goes to Jerusalem, something we can't fathom. You know, we love talking about the graciousness of God and the gentleness of God. And we, we are amazed that he doesn't, as he's hanging on the cross, just blast his accusers, just bring down fire from heaven. All it would have taken was a word. Just, just fire from heaven. Just consume every soldier that had spit on him and slapped him. And the religious leaders who were so smug, standing there, ha, ha, look at him. Now, take yourself off the cross, Jesus. Father, fire, Whew. could have consumed everybody. We're amazed by that. And that's the beauty of the incarnation, right? The humility of the stable, the sacrifice of time and energy and ministering to people who had needs, how he would deflect attention. Hey, don't tell anybody that I'm here, right? Just go and be healed. Be happy. Live your life. Be blessed. God has, God has healed you. Go. But, but don't talk about me. Even the cross, even the sacrifice that he goes through. It's why we love the Lord. It's why we trust him, right? Because there's a humility here. But this is a different side of Jesus. And this is one that stands in sharp contrast to the, to the cultural impressions of Jesus. Because I think there are three ways that Jesus has been unfairly redefined by people. I think our culture has, has said, mankind has said, we're going to reject Jesus, and in doing that, we've got to discount him, so this is how we're going to, to redefine him. Let me give you these three real quick. Number one is he's been devalued. Devalued. At best, he's a great teacher. At best, he's some sort of prophet. At best, he's maybe this moral figure that we should probably kind of listen to like a lot of other moral figures like Gandhi and Buddha and Muhammad and, and, and Martin Luther King and everybody else. He's just one of the lot. At the worst, Jesus is seen as a fraud and a liar. Certainly not worthy of our attention. Definitely not worthy of our trust. And many people despise him and ignore him and dismiss him. They're, they're unwilling to believe that God in flesh really came down and died in our place and, and, and rose again, even though the evidence is powerful. But, but if they accept that, they're accountable to believe. So they devalue him. Second, Jesus has been diminished. Just look at how he's depicted in art. 
Jesus is never seen as powerful. He's never seen as a warrior. He's never seen as a man who is mighty and determined, right? It's always kind of this soft, weak, doe-eyed, kind of extra sensitive, almost a little bit wimpy. Culture wants Jesus to come across as ineffectual, as kind of just happy to be noticed because that will lessen the impact of the message, which was not about excusing people's sin. It was not about showing love by not holding anybody accountable. And that's the third way he's been uh, redefined. He's been distorted. See, man loves sin. And there's a bias to say that because we love sin and we don't want to be accountable, that we will only accept Jesus if he is tolerant and non-judgmental. That, that he will not hold us accountable for our sin because that wouldn't be loving. You, you can't love somebody and hold them accountable. Really, I love my kids like you would not believe, but they're accountable. Because I don't really love them if I let them do whatever they want. They burn down the house. It's okay. I love you. And I'm tolerant and I accept you because you are just expressing yourself, right? Isn't it wonderful how you're just expressing your need to burn things? This is what our culture has come to. That's not love. And there's example after example. That's, a, that's such a limited view of Jesus' ministry. There's example after example of another side of Jesus. He confronted sin, the woman at the well. He told people to stop sinning and change their lives, Zacchaeus and the prostitute. He warned people who were unrepentant. He warned cities that were unrepentant, Chorazin and Bethsaida, where it's are in ruins now. He condemned the, the defiling of the temple and materialism by the priests. He challenged hypocrisy with the Pharisees and the scribes and the people. He called out pride and self-righteousness of the religious leaders. Jesus was anything but soft and weak, physically or spiritually. And we see here the resolution of his mind, the determination of his spirit as he's focused on the calling that is before him, as horrific as it is. And now, how do we apply that? We have to follow that example. The same truth should be true of us as his disciples, which means that looking to Jesus, you and I cannot be soft, wimpy Christians with anemic convictions. Oh, I kind of, I don't know, I just don't want to offend anybody and don't really want to take a stand and don't, you know, my friends, they expect me to be a certain way. There should never, ever, ever be a doubt about the strength of our faith. Our biblical doctrine should be open. It should be evident to all in what we say and what we do. The commitment of our calling should be without equivocation or question. And like Jesus, we should be absolutely determined to do the will of God at any cost. So Jesus is resolute. He's focused. He's going forward. Second, would you see that he was confidently courageous? Confidently courageous. Now, we don't see it in the text. It's going to be later on. But the fact is, Jesus is focused on going toward his accusers. Now, he knows the decree that's been made that he needs to be killed. He knows the level of opposition and hatred, but he still goes. Have you ever been accused by somebody? It's not fun, is it? 
especially when it's unjustified. It's unfair. You're like, wait a second. How? You, you, you can't say that. I mean, that's not true. No, it's true. I remember sitting with somebody once at a restaurant, and they came and listed all the things that I had said in a message that they thought were wrong. 22 things on a computer. And I went through and defended myself on each one. Here's what I said. Here's what the Bible says. I would never say that. Why are you accusing me? It's false accusation. Stirred up other people. Ruined relationships. That's what the devil does. Jesus is going to be accused like you can't believe. He's perfect. He's the pure son of God in flesh coming to redeem people. Oh, you're a blasphemer. How dare you tell people to help people on the Sabbath? Your disciples don't wash their hands. The vileness, the lies, the accusations that were made against Jesus. And he knows as he goes toward Jerusalem that he's going to face that. And it's going to come out of the guilt of these religious leaders who are so corrupt and so evil, trying to cover their own sin and their hypocrisy. And that he's going to be accused and put to death and spit on and mocked and scourged and killed. Notice in the text. Jesus goes straight toward it. Intentionally going back. Now, that kind of raises a question. Was he just giving up? Is he just kind of a, a victim of the circumstances and resigned to the fact that this is a foregone conclusion? You know, sometimes we kind of get that fatalistic mindset, right? We just kind of say, well, it's, it's, it's too much. It's unfair. I don't know. It's unjust. I'm just going to give in, and we become kind of bitter, or we get really tense and harsh, and, and we fight back, and we defend ourselves, and we know that it's not going anywhere. Listen, as the holy God, Jesus would have been absolutely justified to do that. But there is such a balance here. Oh, I'm so struck by it, by how he acts. Look, he's perfectly aligned with the will of the Father. I don't understand that. I've been to seminary. I've been a Christian 42 years. I don't understand how, how there was an alignment with the will of the Father when he's God, okay? I can't explain that. Nobody can. But somehow as the God-man, somehow as God in flesh, there was an alignment with the will of the Father. And Jesus recognizes this is the hour that I have come to fulfill. And there's joy. There's joy in offering eternal redemption to Paul Rhodes. There's joy in offering eternal redemption to, to you and to me. And he faces it with strength and with confidence and with power and resolution of faithfulness that that's going to have its reward. But at the same time, we're going to see in these next two weeks that that strength and graciousness we love about Jesus. When he's accused, he doesn't answer his accusers. And when people are spitting on him and mocking him and the soldiers are nailing those nails into his arms and legs, he's praying for them. Saying, Father, don't hold them accountable for this. And when Pilate accuses him, and when the people crucify him, and when we, every single one of us, sin and rebel against him, he says, I will offer forgiveness to every one of you. I'm willing to save you. I'm willing to forgive you. 
So Jesus isn't careless here. He's not just resigned. He's not just given up. There is an establishment of his will as he goes toward the cross. What an example that is for us. That we must not shy away from our convictions, even in the face of opposition, even when we're ridiculed and accused and criticized and people mock us because Jesus said that's going to happen, right? But he said, listen, when you stand for me, when you defend me before men, I'm going to stand before the Father and defend you. When you believe in me and you handle difficulty with humility and faith, I'm going to bless you beyond what you can understand. Now, it's going to be hard, and you're not going to understand why you're going through it, and your heart's going to try to get hardened, and, and the devil's going to tell you lies, and he's going to accuse you, and you're going to want to believe him. But listen, you stand for me. You stand for your convictions. You trust me, and I will bring you victory. And when we do that, that robs the enemy of his effectiveness. It steals any sense of conquest that the devil might have because we're saying, nope, I'm looking to Jesus. He's the one who did this, and I'm going to stand firm with him. But here's the problem. That's not a popular posture. When we do that, when we stand for our convictions, when we live by faith and not by sight, Jesus says, you're going to be lonely you're going to be more on your own than you want to be, and you're going to feel like an alien because you are. And you're not only going to be separated from the majority, you're going to be criticized for it. So that leads to the third amazing truth. Jesus was calmly alone. He's calmly alone. When we look at the life of Christ, it is interesting how much he's alone. Now, you say, well, Paul, he's constantly surrounded by people. Yeah, he is. It's not that no one's near him. It's that no one understands him. Even the 12 who are closest to him don't get it till Acts. I mean, they really don't understand until Acts. Mary and Joseph, who were his parents, who had heard both from the angel, who knew that this was miraculous, even they are a little confused and astonished when Jesus stays back at the temple at 12 and they get down the road up to Nazareth. They're like, wait a second, where's Jesus? They go back and he's standing in the temple teaching people and they're kind of like, what in the world? There's nothing worse in life really than being misunderstood, Right? Or are you just trying to get out what you mean and people cut you off and they interrupt you and they say something different? You're like, no, 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 wait a second. This is what I'm trying. No, this is what you really meant. That's the pits, right? Jesus was chronically misunderstood. And now he goes to accomplish this. Look back at the text. And he tells them what he's going to do. He's going to be accused and die as our substitute. And there is a void of understanding with those closest to him. So as he draws near to Jerusalem, getting ready for this great struggle, attacked by the enemy, full of love for mankind, but full of sorrow over sin, the disciples are arguing who's the best. And when they do hear him say it again, instead of praying, instead of hugging him, instead of saying, Lord, we're going to be strong with you. We're going we're to stand with you. Oh, Father, help, help Jesus right now. Instead of that, they're just stunned and scared. Now, a little bit later, someone, I'll go to the cross with you, Jesus. I'm, I'm there. I'm, I'm with you. 
And then Judas shows up in the Garden of Gethsemane, where they're asleep, by the way, even though Jesus says, hey, I've got one job here. Watch and pray. I just, watch and pray. I'm in agony right now. The weight of sin is starting to be put on me. He's sweating blood. Watch and pray. The disciples are, they're asleep. Judas shows up, and they're going, what's going on? And, and, and Peter tries to do his Peter thing. He tries to be real impulsive and attack them with a sword, and Jesus says, stop it, Peter. And Judas and the soldiers take Jesus away. And what happens? The disciples follow. Wait a second. You can't do that. Nope, they take off. Peter's the only one that follows. And Peter denies him publicly to Jesus' face, essentially. And then there's really only about half of them at the cross. And nobody's at the tomb the morning where Jesus said, I'm going to rise again. So maybe all this boasting was like, look... I think Jesus will do his thing. When it comes time and they're going to accuse him and they're going to try to attack him, he'll do his thing. He'll be Jesus. He'll be God. And he'll wipe them out. But, but look, it'll look really good if I've said to Jesus, I'll go to the cross with you. So, so maybe when Jesus wipes them out, because he's not, come on, Jesus isn't going to die. I mean, seriously, what's going on here? So, so he's going to do his thing. He's going to be God. He's going to wipe out these religious leaders. And, and I'll have said, Jesus, I'll stand with you. And then Jesus will look at me and go, thank you for being there for me. I, I, that's a new insight. I think that's right. He's alone. There's nobody that's ever been as alone as Jesus was in that last week. And yet he's confident in the presence of the Father. And he's secure because what had he done? He had spent so much time intentionally alone in the presence and fellowship of the Father. So when it comes time to stand alone as the only one who can be the sacrifice for our sin, as the only one who can offer eternal grace to us, Jesus calmly goes to the cross, despising the shame, but joyful because of what it was going to do. And again, let's close. What an example to apply to our lives. Adam referred to it earlier. How much are we enjoying and finding strength in the presence of the Lord? How much are we refreshing our faith and being encouraged to press on and to stand for him even when we're rejected, even when we're abandoned, even when we feel alone in trusting him? Jesus told us it would happen. But he gave us the word to encourage us. He gave us the spirit to comfort and strengthen us. And he gave us the body to empower us. Because how many know as a child of God, you are never, ever alone. You're never alone. Jesus himself said, I'll be with you till the end of the world. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never abandon you. And my spirit will seal that. He'll indwell you, and he'll comfort you, and he'll empower you. You know, when, when we're completely resolved to trust and serve him without any wavering, and when we are completely courageous, I'm going to stand with the Lord no matter what. I'm going to live for him. I'm going to trust him even when it's difficult and it's unfair. When we do that, we will understand that Jesus stood alone so you and I don't have to. So if your fear this morning, we sang it earlier, if your fear is trying to convince you to trust it, you can trust your fear. It's safe. It's comfortable. This is who you should do. If, if the enemy's trying to wear you down with his lies and his accusations, the Bible says one thing. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your what? Tell me. Faith. It's always about faith. 
It's always about trust. Because faith is what convinces us that the Lord loves us and he's with us and he'll provide for us. So I want to encourage us this morning. We're done. I want to encourage us. Find strength in the strength of Jesus. It is when we take our eyes off of him. It is when we stop looking at him. We stop trusting him. We stop having the resoluteness of his purpose. When we start thinking about ourselves and start listening to accusation and start getting discouraged because life isn't going what we want. When we get to that place, our faith gets diminished. But when we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we now become strong and courageous. We now become able to handle anything because we're unwavering in our obedience and God is sufficient for all that we need. Listen, if Jesus could set his faith face toward Jerusalem, knowing what he faced, and not just, well, you know, we'll kind of get there when we get there. Okay. I hope the disciples are like hanging back on Jesus. Let's go. I have a purpose. I'm going to be killed. But I'm going to rise again. And that will give you life that's abundant. Let's ask the Lord to help us.